This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Everything is changing so fast, but now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Okay, you know why you're here today? Yes. And what's that? I gave somebody a ride and he disappeared. Deputy Stephen Calkins was talking to a polygraph examiner about two weeks after Terrence Williams vanished in January 2004. It was the first of three lie detector tests he would take for his agency, the Collier County Sheriff's Office. We'll listen to all three in this episode. By the first polygraph, the Sheriff's Office knew that Calkins pulled Terrence over by a cemetery in Naples, Florida, and that Calkins did not arrest Terrence, but left the cemetery with Terrence in the back of his patrol car. Calkins said he dropped Terrence off at a Circle K. Deputy Calkins, who was white, was a veteran of the force. He was nearly 50. Terrence Williams is black and was 27 when he went missing. There has never been another verified sighting of Terrence since he was seen with Calkins. He was with me the last. I just, I just hope nothing bad happens to him. But I know how some of these characters can run. I'm Janine Zeitlin. This is the last ride from the USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media. Distributed by the NPR Network. Episode 4, The Polygraphs. In this episode, we'll hear Deputy Calkins share his version of what happened the day Terrence Williams disappeared, and how Calkins' statements conflicted with what witnesses said, and even with what Calkins himself said at different times. We'll start with Calkins' first polygraph session and point out the inconsistencies when compared to other statements, including what Deputy Calkins said about the condition of Terrence's car. An older model, full-size, white uh, Cadillac. And uh, he was having car trouble, obviously. That assessment contradicted what Terrence's stepfather said. He picked up the Cadillac after Terrence disappeared. The only problem I had was the windshield wipers are old, and that's it. Other than that, the car runs fine. In the second polygraph, we'll hear the sheriff's office examiner question Deputy Calkins about a key point in his statement. Our whole purpose is to determine only one thing, and that's whether or not you've been completely truthful with us when you say that you took him to the Circle K and that you didn't take him anyplace else. And, in the third polygraph, the relationship between Calkins and the examiner grows increasingly tense. The examiner hinted at suspecting Calkins of something far worse than lying. And every time we have to go back and get clarification, it makes it look like you're trying to hide something. And if you're trying to hide this, what else are you trying to hide? Do we got a body laying around in the sticks somewhere that we don't know about? The recordings were not public when I published my first story on the cases. The sheriff's office finally decided to release them in 2019, after another journalist threatened to involve the Florida Attorney General's office. As someone who has been following the case for so long, it was fascinating to finally hear Calkins discuss the circumstances of Terrence's disappearance. Several clips we'll hear are from interviews right before and after the actual tests. We've lightly edited some of these and other recordings in this episode for time and clarity. All right, on to polygraph number one. It was done on January 23, 2004, as part of the missing persons investigation of Terrence Williams. The goal for the test was to clear Deputy Calkins in the investigation. Sergeant Joe Johnson was the examiner. You know, the most important thing today is that you do not lie to me in this room today. All right? That is the most important thing. The polygraph was voluntary. The agency had not asked him to take a polygraph when Felipe Santos disappeared in October 2003, three months before Terrence. Felipe, a new father and laborer from Mexico, was the first man to vanish after last being seen in Calkins' patrol car. Instead of arresting Felipe, Calkins said he gave Felipe a ride to a Circle K, the same story he would give to investigators about Terrence. Calkins has never been arrested or charged in the disappearances. He has long denied wrongdoing. But the sheriff's office continues to say he is the only person of interest. So just simply put, if I re-asked you a question, it only means the very first time I asked it, there was some sort of distortion. It's got nothing to do with you telling the truth and you telling a lie. <clears throat> Any questions on that? Nope. My palms are sweating already, though. Yeah, that's just, and that's normal, so don't, don't even worry about it. We're listening to audio from the pre-interview for the polygraph. 
Polygraphs measure things like heart rate and blood pressure to judge a person's physiological response to questions. But before we go further, I want to acknowledge polygraphs are problematic. The American Psychological Association says most psychologists agree there is little evidence the tests can accurately detect lies. Professor and social psychologist Leonard Sachs told us why. Yeah, the fundamental issue uh, is that there is no unique physiological response to lying. It is it's a fantasy that a machine that measures simple autonomic nervous system responses can determine whether a person is being honest or not. How nervous a person is is not necessarily an indicator of their deceptiveness. Still, I think it's worth listening to how Calkins described his interaction with Terrence and why he stopped Terrence in the first place, because you can hear the inconsistencies in his story. All right. So tell me about January 12th and how you came in contact with Terrence Williams. I was on patrol. I came up behind his car. It was driving, he was slowing down, and it was driving real slow. It was, okay. It was, a, it was an older model, full-size, white uh, Cadillac. And I, I motioned for him to just pull over anywhere. And uh, he was having car trouble, obviously. Let's pause to talk about the car's condition. According to the files, Terrence's mother and stepfather said they were told by a sheriff's captain that Calkins had noticed Terrence's Cadillac because it was smoking. I spoke with Terrence's stepfather, also named Terrence, Terrence Bug, about that. The car wasn't smoking. He just put a new engine in it. It's a brand new engine in the car. So we know that one. When we drove it home, no smoke. So it was in perfect Yeah, so he, he was just telling a lie. You know, it was an old car, yes, but with a new engine. And that was exasperating to continue to go down to the police station and say this, 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 and this. We'd tell them what was wrong and they Basically put their hands up. Ah. What do you want me to do? Witnesses at the cemetery said the car seemed fine. In statements to law enforcement, they said they did not see smoke and they did not hear sputtering or faulty engine sounds from the Cadillac before they saw Calkin stop it. In this first polygraph, Calkin said that once he motioned him over, Terrence pulled into the parking lot of Naples Memorial Gardens, the cemetery. So what was your conversation with him? Uh, I just yelled if he, uh, if he was breaking down, if he needed some help. And what did you say? Well, it wasn't much of a conversation. He said, yeah, I appreciate it. Okay. And he got out of his car, and uh, I got out of my hand. Okay. Uh, and um, I said, what's wrong with your car? He says, I don't know, I just bought it, and uh, it's not running right. And then he asked me for a ride. Two footnotes here to keep in mind. One, even acknowledging that he remembers Terrence is a different version of what Calkins said on the day he pulled Terrence over. As we heard in a previous episode, Calkins acted like he didn't know who the car belonged to when he called dispatch that day. Two, in a court deposition, Terrence's mother said she didn't buy that her son would ask an officer for a ride because, quote, he can't stand them. Okay, back to the polygraph. Where do you want a ride to, did he say? Well, I said no at first. Okay. <laughs> I said uh, no, I'll call you the cab, though. Okay. I, wanted, I wanted to get to the substation. <laughs> so what happened that you didn't call him a cab? Yeah, he asked me again, and he was asking real nice. He said it was just up at the Circle K at Wiggins. Did he say he worked there or what? Or he just asked for a ride to go there? I just assumed he worked there. I, okay. I, we didn't have a real big conversation. Okay. I said, get in, we'll go. Let's shut the door in your car. you got to come back and get this car. He said he would. And I said, get in. Buckle up. Let's go. What time in the morning did this happen? <sighs> Best of your recollection. It was right at noon that this was happening. Okay. A little afternoon. A moment here to talk timeline. Because the timeline of the interaction between Deputy Calkins and Terrence is backwater level murky. The information we do have is contradictory. And there's no data to back up exactly when Calkins stopped Terrence at the cemetery. Cemetery workers told investigators they saw Calkins stop Terrence between 9 and 10 a.m., As we just heard, Calkins said he stopped Terrence around noon. 
But Calkins's log shows he was on a call at a condo building from 11.40 a.m. to 12.24 p.m., around the same time he claimed he met Terrence. After Calkins left with Terrence in his patrol car, the cemetery workers estimated Calkins returned 30 to 90 minutes later, alone. However, Calkins's recollection was different. This didn't take long. I was going to say, 10 minutes tops. It doesn't take long on those back roads like that. That's why I like to stay up in that area. I don't know what traffic was like then. But when I recently checked Google Maps, it took about seven minutes one way to go from the cemetery to the Circle K. So Calkins's estimate about the time it took him to go to the Circle K and back could be true, as long as he was driving a little fast. What we do know, thanks to recorded dispatch calls, is that Calkins called for a tow truck for Terrence's car, and the truck arrived around 1 p.m. In a 2020 interview with CNN, retired Collier Sheriff's Detective Kevin O'Neill said questions about timing were an issue for investigators, too. He said the cemetery workers may have been a little off on when they saw Calkins. Yet, O'Neill also said this. If I had to believe between cemetery workers and Steve Calkins, I would go with the cemetery workers. Put it that way. O'Neill said that in 2004, there wasn't technology on Calkins's car to confirm where Calkins was throughout the day. The reporter asked if Calkins could have had enough time to abduct and kill Terrence in the unaccounted times during his shift. I don't want to get into theories because theories and motives are very, very tough to get into. To start zeroing in on a particular theory, then you start shaping evidence to your theory as opposed to letting the facts bring you. The facts are, again, too, it's an unaccounted time from Calkins that anything could have happened in that time frame. There's a lot of speculation on social media about what could have happened in the time frames after Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams were last seen with Deputy Stephen Calkins. One theory is based on our proximity to the vast, swampy wilderness that is the Everglades. On NPR's Throughline. Bread, freedom, and national dignity. It was time for the regime to fix itself. That's why I was going out. Remembering the Arab Spring. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Betterment. Confusing eye contact with a mysterious stranger is never chill, but your investing portfolio should be. Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. No more thinking about them more than they're thinking about you. Because Betterment will be thinking about you and how to optimize your investments. Well, you'll be thinking about that mysterious stranger. Betterment. Be invested and totally chill. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spend time in any American city, and you'll likely encounter someone with untreated psychosis. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our maze-like system for treating severe mental illness, which loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. Does it have to be this way? For the history, the reality, and hopefully some solutions, listen to Lost Patients from KUOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. With NPR Plus, you get bonus content from behind the scenes of your favorite shows, like the NPR Politics Podcast. A friend of mine who worked at the Associated Press came in to the courtroom and said, Step to it. Michael Cohen has flipped on Trump. And with NPR Plus, you'll be supporting public media. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Some armchair detectives have speculated that Deputy Calkins drove Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams to the Everglades. Collier County sits on the northern edge of the Everglades, which is known as a dumping ground for unwanted pets, cars, and yes, even dead bodies. A South Florida police captain even said, quote, It's a convenient place to dump people because there are gators out there to eat them. I reviewed the timeline the sheriff's office put together of Calkins' shift the day Terrence disappeared. There are some unaccounted-for stretches of around 20 minutes and 50 minutes, but it could take at least two hours to drive to Everglades National Park and back from North Naples, where Calkins stopped Terrence, though there are certainly woodsy areas closer. 
and also the Gulf of Mexico. I don't see how Calkins had time to meet Terrence, take him to the Everglades, and return during his shift. In 2019, my colleague Ryan Mills asked Collier Sheriff Lieutenant Jason Robleski about the Everglades theory. And you looked at his fuel records, and did you see any evidence that he had gone on any long trips that maybe down to the Everglades or anything like that? No, there was nothing that, that would indicate that he took his patrol car to, to the Everglades or, or anywhere you know, outside uh, his, even his jurisdiction. And he could take his car home. Correct, yes. So, I mean, it's potentially, I guess, after work, he could have driven down to the Everglades. Sure, yes, that's possible. Another theory that's been floated is that Calkins dropped the men off in the Everglades or another remote place as punishment. One of my colleagues asked famous civil rights attorney Ben Crump about that in 2018. Crump represents Terrence's mother, Marcia Williams. I've heard of that theory. Um, The reason we tend to reject that theory is we believe that somebody would have found remains at that point versus an orchestrated, a nefarious act where somebody... Uh, kill them and hid the bodies where they would never be found. Now there's much better technology to track police officers. And even though back then was a different story, Calkins did not use the technology that was available in 2004 when he pulled Terrence over. Records show that Calkins did not radio the traffic stop in as required by policy, nor did he enter it into his mobile data terminal. A sheriff sergeant asked why Calkins didn't initially report his interactions with Terrence. Why did you not call this thing out? I, my supervisor asked me the same thing. I was in a hurry. I was going to the substation. It was my time of the day to go to the sub, like I usually do. That's why I keep saying it was around noon. I know it was around noonish. And, uh, I don't know. I'm going to check out the stuff sometimes the way I should. There's a lot of radio traffic this time of the year. I'm old-fashioned. It's a bad habit of mine. Not getting on the radio right away on things, but... Calkins told me in an interview several years ago that he didn't report giving Terrence a ride because he was having a busy day and wanted to get to lunch. However, dispatch records show he did report other calls that day. To recap, here's what we've gleaned so far from records and interviews. Our first discrepancy contains multitudes. Calkins's story. Calkins didn't tell his agency like he was supposed to about stopping Terrence. Four days after the stop, Calkins told dispatch he didn't recall Terrence or his car. We heard that call in a previous episode. Yet, after Terrence's family brought questions about Calkins's actions to the sheriff's office, Calkins wrote a detailed report of his interactions with Terrence. He said he gave him a ride to a Circle K. When investigators and Terrence's stepfather checked the Circle K video, they didn't see Terrence. Discrepancy two, the Cadillac. Calkins said it appeared like something was wrong with it. Terrence's stepfather said it was fine. Discrepancy three, timing. Investigators heard conflicting statements from Calkins and the cemetery workers as to when Calkins pulled Terrence over and how long Calkins was gone before he returned. And the sheriff's office's own communications records contradict what Calkins said. Those records show Calkins was at a condo complex around noon and shortly after. During the same time, he said he stopped Terrence. Okay, let's return to that first polygraph session in January 2004. What reason did Calkins give for returning to the cemetery after dropping Terrence off? I figured I'd pop in there and let the office at the cemetery know what was going on. I just pulled in quickly and, and yelled at him that, um, that they'd be getting a car out of there right away. But according to interview transcripts, cemetery workers said Calkins told them he'd be back for the car before he left with Terrence. Then what happened? Well, at that time, I uh, I noticed the tag was uh, expired. Okay. Because I pulled in right behind the car this time, and uh, I got out, and I figured um, I'd check the glove box real quick, because he said the uh, receipt and the uh, registration was in the glove box. 
And I reached in and opened the glove box, and it was empty. In a court deposition, Terrence's mother, Marcia, said that when the family got access to the Cadillac from the towing company, the glove box was not empty. She said she found the title, Terrence's birth certificate, and his Florida photo ID in there. Marcia said that in 2020. We don't know if the sheriff's office knew about that discrepancy at the time. And then I noticed the keys were on the uh, floorboard. Okay. And then I became a little suspicious, and I went and called the tag in. And um, she said it was no record found or non-registered, unknown make and model, if I remember correctly. So at that time, I went back to the Circle K okay. to look for parents. Or did I call? Wait a minute. I can't remember. I either ran back up there or I called her on the phone. Calkins waffled on this point, and we'll hear in a bit how he also changed what he said about where he made the call from. Okay, so you either went back or called Circle K. I got, a, I got a phone book in my car I keep. Okay. I either ran back up there or I called on the phone okay. to ask for Terrence. Okay. See what was going on. Why would he leave the keys in his car? All right. And, um... Terrence was nowhere to be found. Does, did he work there, do you know? I called, uh, no, I, I called the girl on the phone. I think it was a Hispanic girl I got. And I asked for Terrence. Okay. And she says, I don't know any Terrence here. In this particular interview, he doesn't settle on whether he called or if he went there. I can't remember. That's fine. <laughs> whether you go back or not, the point of it is, <laughs> Terrence doesn't work there, right? Testimony from Circle K employees contradicts the claim that Calkins talked to anyone at the Circle K that day. According to the case files, the Circle K manager said that Calkins showed up at the store several days after Terrence disappeared. Calkins asked the store manager if he could speak to Terrence. She showed Calkins a missing person flyer that Terrence's family had left. The manager told police, quote, Deputy Calkins appeared to be in shock. It's hard to know what to make of that without knowing for sure if he was actually shocked. And if so, why was he shocked? In an interview a few weeks after the first polygraph, Calkins would say he called the Circle K from his cell phone. By that time, the sheriff's office had a chance to research Calkins' claim. You said that you called the Circle K. Yes. And you said earlier that you keep a phone book in the front of your car. Yes. What phone did you use to call him from? I believe my little, um, my little next time, I believe. Is that the personal phone or the agency phone? That would be the agency phone. Because the CID pulled your phone records and they don't show any call coming to the Circle K from your cell phone. Hmm. I don't know what to tell you there. The sheriff's office checked three phone directories and discovered there was no number listed for the Circle K where Calkins said he dropped Terrence off. The number Calkins said he got out of a phone book. Investigators even tried calling directory assistance a few times, but they were given the number to a different Circle K. Internal Affairs noted Calkins' differing phone accounts. Their records state, quote, Calkins later changed the story two more times, will later state that he carries the number in his pocket notepad. It is in the pad now. And that he got it while at the substation and called from there. Yet investigators couldn't verify the number was in the pad the day Terrence disappeared. The sheriff's office interviewed all six of the people working at the Circle K that day. None recalled a call from someone asking for Terrence or from a collier deputy. They didn't recall seeing Calkins or Terrence at the store either. So how he got the number where he called from, and if he called, are yet more inconsistencies. As these various contradictions came to light, Calkins defended himself in a letter to the sheriff. He noted that his memory was not clear on the events with Terrence, and, quote, I had nothing of any large concern to deliberately lie or deceive about. But, during the January polygraph session, it was Calkins accusing Terrence of lying. Because, as we heard earlier, Calkins said Terrence told him the proper documents were in the glove box— And then, 
Calkins said the documents weren't there when he checked the car later at the cemetery. All right, then what happened? Well, then I became a little angry <laughs> with Terrence and myself and uh, called for a record. Okay. That's how I fixed him out the car. <laughs> later in the interview, he said this. You know, he duped me is what he did. Listen to The Last Ride, the podcast investigating the disappearances of two men last seen with the same Florida sheriff's deputy. Join us for a new episode, a conversation with Marcia Williams before the 20th anniversary of her son's disappearance. It's okay for you to tell my story. If you don't know who you may be talking to, that could put their finger right there. Listen to all nine episodes of The Last Ride, part of the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. You know the names of the primary players. Jimmy Carter. Our country's not strong anymore. Ronald Reagan. We have perverted our Constitution. Gerald Ford. Let's go! But how they acted... It's just about the opposite of their popular images. Those are the seeds of the culture war. Landslide, how a presidential race led to today's political divide. Subscribe now to Landslide, part of the NPR network. We concede not a single state. We concede not a single vote. The new podcast, Landslide. The forgotten story of how a presidential race led to today's parties and division. Winning the presidency is the most important thing. But how much do you do to win it? Landslide, part of the NPR Network. Subscribe now. History is intriguing, but unlike the present, it can feel far off. On NPR's Throughline, we bring it back to life. I will toss you in the air like a lion. I will leave no one alive in your realm. Go inside the stories from then that shape the world we live in now. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. NPR Plus is a new way to support public media and get more from your favorite NPR podcasts like Fresh Air. Sometimes I'll actually preface the question with, if it makes you too uncomfortable to talk about, if it's too personal, just tell me. Here's the question. For behind-the-scenes content, bonus episodes, and more, sign up at plus.npr.org. After about 45 minutes of the pre-interview, the examiner from the sheriff's office prepared to give their deputy, Stephen Calkins, the official polygraph test. A report shows the examiner focused on three main questions. Are you lying when you said that you dropped Terrence off at the Circle K? Did you drop Terrence off anywhere else other than the Circle K? Do you know for a fact the whereabouts of Terrence? Calkins answered no to these three questions. The audio doesn't reveal why that part wasn't being taped. But when the recording started again, the examiner had some not great news for Calkins. Sorry it took so long, but the problem is, is that there were so many distortions in those charts. The polygraph report doesn't include the charts, but does note, Calkins advised he was having a sinus problem that affected his throat. This caused distortions to the chart. Extra charts were conducted. However, the distortions kept occurring. Recall the polygraph examiner told Calkins at the start that distortions didn't necessarily indicate to him that Calkins was lying. He said distortions could also be caused by unintentional movements. The problem is, is that at this point I just can't clear you, and I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that you failed it, uh, because I'm not saying that whatsoever. But the fact of it is, we got to have those clear charts, and we just... Several of them just ain't because of those distortions. The dialogue between Calkins and the examiner after the test was intriguing. The examiner repeated one of the questions he had asked. What are you thinking, though, when I ask you, do you know for a fact the whereabouts of Terrence? What's coming across your mind? Anything in particular? What are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? Yeah. What do you, when I ask you that question, what are you thinking about? Do you know for a fact? I mean, when, when you did your own little investigation, anything come up? I mean, or what are you thinking when I ask that question? Ask it, ask it again. Do you know for a fact the whereabouts of Terrence? 
What do you think? What come across your mind when I ask you that? Yeah. Do I know the whereabouts of? Do you have your own idea? Maybe where he's at. Got a lot of ideas, but I don't. I mean, what's your ideas? Oh, I don't know. Calkins had said no to this question during the actual test, but during this post-exam interview, by my count, the examiner asked him a version of the question seven times before Calkins finally offered some thoughts. He might be. Uh, he might have fled the country. Uh, he might have. Uh, Got hurt? I, I don't know. What do you mean you got hurt? Being some bad friends? I, I don't know. Nothing in particular is coming across my mind, but I just, God only knows what could happen out here. Yeah. And uh, I hope he didn't uh, hurt himself or get depressed or anything, thinking that that I'm coming after him or something. There's, there's not a warrant out for him from us. And well, what's this about a warrant? Does he think he's got a warrant? I think somebody told me that they thought there was a warrant out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, I think is where he's from. Here's a little background on that. Terrence lived in Tennessee before Naples, so did his kids. And the warrant was related to child support. According to investigators, a warrant only good in Tennessee was issued for Terrence shortly after he disappeared. That's because Terrence failed to pay $5,000 in back child support that was due two days after he disappeared. The deadline had been set by a court before Terrence disappeared. In a court deposition, Terrence's mother, Marcia, said she believed Terrence planned to return to Tennessee to meet the court deadline before he went missing. During the polygraph, the examiner pointed out to Calkins that the warrant was not active when the deputy was with Terrence. This is something after the fact. No, that day, nothing happened. Now I'm thinking, I hope he hasn't uh, run away or hurt himself because he's thinking I'm coming after him. I guess yeah, but would a guy really hurt him. himself if they think you're after him, Johnny Law's after him, you know what I mean? Well, if, if he's a criminal and he doesn't want to go back to jail, or if he's on probation or something, I, people run, people, I don't know. In case you didn't hear that, the examiner, who had been pretty dang friendly so far, dismissed Calkins's suggestion. I just, uh, I feel, I feel bad because I screwed up, and I feel bad that all this shit is coming down in the S.O. because of me, and I feel bad that uh, I know his family's uh, upset and worried, but uh, I mean, he seemed like a nice kid to me, even if his hair was a little wild. He seemed like a nice. He was very clean cut and and very uh, soft spoken and clean cut. I, Calkins may have been referring to Terrence's long dreadlocks. During another interview with the sheriff's office, Calkins repeated that Terrence's demeanor was among the reasons he helped him out. Light-skinned, handsome young man. <laughs> and I, I, mean, I was not afraid to give him a ride or, or anything. He didn't scare me. Uh, all I told him was we talked about that tag problem. And I said it in kind of a, you know, a flirty way. Kind of a joking, um, wasn't a threat. <laughs> that brings up yet another changing detail. When Calkins noticed the expired tag. In his first report, written a week after Terrence disappeared, he said he noticed the expired tag before he dropped Terrence off at the Circle K. But as we heard earlier, Calkins told the polygraph examiner that he noticed the expired tag after he dropped off Terrence. Then, in the interview we just heard, he goes back to seeing the tag before dropping Terrence off. We would have liked to have interviewed Calkins himself about the inconsistencies in his statements. But he did not respond to interview requests for this project. In my brief interview with Calkins two years after the disappearances, he said he didn't do anything wrong, aside from not perfectly following the agency's rules. He felt like the sheriff's office was making him a scapegoat, and said that maybe Terrence and Felipe ran into someone else after he dropped them off. Or they were hiding out. He expressed concern, but also, quote, I find it hard to believe someone can disappear from the face of the earth. And there's a lot of con artists in southwest Florida. In the end, the polygraph examiner concluded no opinion on that first test, meaning he couldn't tell if Calkins was lying or not. Five days after the test, Terrence's mother and stepfather filed an internal affairs complaint against Calkins. 
Terrence's parents wrote three pages of facts they had learned and noted the inconsistencies and inaccuracies in Calkins' account. One of their main questions early on was, why didn't Calkins arrest Terrence? Their question was exceedingly valid. Records show there were several violations that Terrence could have been arrested or cited for. Attached tag, unassigned, expired plates, driving without a valid license, failure to produce registration, insurance, and a license. Calkins told Internal Affairs that he didn't charge Terrence with anything because he was polite, seemed like a good kid, and Calkins was in a hurry to return to the substation. While the sheriff's office questioned Calkins about the inconsistencies in his early statements, Terrence's mother believes they could have gone much further. She shared her thoughts when we talked in 2022. Now, could they have questioned him in the beginning a little bit harder? Yeah, I believe that the sheriff's department should have put more heat on him. Because I know that I was being watched every day, being questioned all the time. So how much heat did they put on him? The sheriff's office also seemed intent on looking at any other explanation for the disappearances that did not include their own deputy. And some of their ideas sounded outlandish. A sergeant brought up the possibility that Terrence was hiding out to Terrence's stepfather, Terrence Bug. If Terrence is out there for any reason, and we get a message to him that, look, have somebody take your picture close up, uh-huh. holding the newspaper, uh-huh. and sign on the back, I am okay, in a signature that you and his mother could look at and say, Terrence wrote this. At right. least we could oh, yeah. relieve your mind that you're okay. Right. If he's in trouble and he needs help, instead of hiding from, from us, because we're not, uh, he has no fear from the Clark County Sheriff's Office. The proposed photo shoot sounded like something out of a TV crime drama. Bug dismissed the idea that Terrence was hiding. He's not a runner. That's, that's not the nature of the boy. He's not a runner. He's, his problems can hit him in the head repeatedly, and he'll stand there until he decides what he's going to do, until he comes up with a plan. Well, I haven't seen where he's been in any trouble with our agency He has not. For the past almost two years, he's been here, and he's been working, working towards the goal, uh, you know, failing at, at, at times, but not giving up, continuing to move forward. In my interview with Bug, he said investigators threw out another theory. They came up with a story and said, well, we saw reports that Terrence was in Alaska. I said, Alaska? Yeah, they say he was, he's working on a, a pipeline. I said, this boy ain't never left his mother's side. I said, he couldn't survive one day without his mother. I know that. Why would he walk away from her life? For nothing. To be in Alaska? Of all places? (laughs) Missing persons expert Michelle Janis told us cases of people voluntarily escaping their lives or faking suicide are rare. It's highly improbable that it was a voluntary disappearance, um, in part because it's hard to pull that off long term. Another detail that pointed to an involuntary disappearance by Terrence is that he left behind two of his Pizza Hut paychecks, money earned for at least 50 hours of work. Wouldn't that have also been a big clue to the sheriff's office that Terrence didn't just leave town? Terrence's co-worker, Christina Birmingham, was skeptical about why investigators kept coming to her house. She hosted the after-work party Terrence attended before vanishing the next morning. My colleague Ryan interviewed Birmingham. They would hide in your backyard? Yeah, they would be in the backyard, like, hiding in bushes. It was creepy. <laughs> Just like spying on you? Yeah, like spying, like trying to listen. On to th- I'm like, you ain't going to hear nothing, <laughs> you know? I knew it. I'm like, you need to go talk to your cop buddy. So they left me alone after that. They were trying to blame someone other than their own people. That's what was going on. The sheriff's office even set up nighttime surveillance at Birmingham's apartment to try to catch another Pizza Hut co-worker they wanted to interview. They later ruled out that coworker as having any involvement in Terrence's disappearance. In the case files, I saw no evidence Terrence or Felipe were hiding out. There were suspected sightings of the men over the years, but none were verified by the sheriff's office as credible. While investigators were chasing other theories, the Collier Sheriff's Office also began its internal affairs investigation into Deputy Calkins. It began after Terrence's mother and stepfather filed a complaint. A few weeks after the first, and inconclusive, polygraph with Calkins, the sheriff's office asked him to return for a second polygraph. That happened in February 2004, the month after Terrence disappeared. 
The second polygraph was part of the internal affairs investigation. There were more questions for Calkins. Collier Sheriff's Corporal Scott Walters told Calkins the focus of the exam would be this. Our whole purpose is to determine only one thing, and that's whether or not you've been completely truthful with us when you say that you took him to the Circle K and that you didn't take him anyplace else. Calkins did not sound happy to be called in for another polygraph. Before the test, Calkins sighed and yawned. He also coughed and cleared his throat. His sinuses seemed to be bothering him, so he was given a different kind of test. What we're going to do is what we call a silent answer test. You just nod your head for yes and side to side for no. The examiner focused on two main questions. The first... Are you lying today when you say that you took Terrence to the Circle K? No, he indicated. The second question he was asked... Did you take Terrence anywhere else other than the Circle K? Again, Calkins responded no. The polygraph examiner came to this conclusion. It is the opinion of the examiner that the subject was truthful regarding his involvement in this matter. No deception indicated. But for the final polygraph, the findings and the demeanor of the examiner would be much, much different. The third and final polygraph in the case files took place in April 2004, three months after Terrence Williams disappeared. It was also part of the internal affairs investigation. The Collier Sheriff's Office called Deputy Calkins back for another test to further clarify what he did after allegedly dropping Terrence off at a Circle K. Several things were going on in the background. Terrence's family had gone to the press and shared that Calkins was giving inconsistent statements. Now the case had public scrutiny, and the examiner was well aware of that. I know I've said it before, but the more we can verify with you, the less that people can come back and say, what about this, what about that? The sheriff's office was struggling to nail Calkins down to a consistent timeline. I mean, Steve, I mean, you got to look at the timeline for what it is as well. I mean, I try to ignore a lot of things, but... When something's smacking you in the face. By the time of the third polygraph, the sheriff's office had involved the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Searches for the men weren't turning up any answers. The final polygraph was done by the same examiner who did the second one. Call your sheriff's corporal, Scott Walters. He focused on these four questions. One. Was there any further contact with you and Terrence after the Circle K? Two. Have you had any physical contact with Terrence since you dropped him at the Circle K on that day in question? Three. Did you take Terrence anywhere else but the Circle K on that date? That question had also been in the second polygraph, the one Calkins had passed. And four, this question. When you did run him by that date of birth, that April of 75 date of birth, was Terrence with you when you ran him by that date of birth? To all four questions, Calkins answered no. Before we move on, let's bring some context to that final question. Because as you'll hear soon, the examiner seriously questioned Calkins' response of no. As we've talked about before, Deputy Calkins did not radio in or report pulling Terrence over and giving him a ride on the day of his disappearance. Instead, Calkins called dispatch to report an abandoned car. He didn't acknowledge that he knew who the driver was. Then, in another call to dispatch, about 15 minutes later, Calkins asked for a warrant check. He told dispatch he did not have a driver's license, but he did have Terrence's full name, spelled correctly, and a birth date. The catch was that it was not Terrence's real birthday. A call is hard to hear, but Deputy Calkins says 4175. April Fool's Day. An investigator said Terrence gave out this date when he didn't want people to know his real birthday. As we've noted, his mother said he was not a fan of the police. During an interview portion of the third polygraph session, the examiner asked Calkins for clarity on how he got the fake birthday. The date of birth that you ran on him, where did you come by that information? I don't know why. Well, did Terrence tell it to you? I don't know. I, I had three answers for that question. Okay. Well, give me the three that you got. Okay. <laughs> Terrence told me. <clears throat> I found it in his car. Or the misdemeanor investigator gave it to me. 
doesn't matter how you came by the information if you're doing it for legitimate reasons, you know. Well, I don't know. I, I still don't understand what the... But I'm just... Yeah. <clears throat> I don't mean to be smart ass, but how many data births does he have? I mean... I don't know. That's a real good question. What's the significant thing about this? Well... Supposed secret data birth? The data birth that you used is one that basically is known to Terrence. Uh, it's not anything that really appears on anything else. Presumably, Terrence would have had to give Deputy Calkins the fake birthday. After the test, the examiner determined that Calkins's most significant reaction came from the birthday question. He told Calkins that he failed the test. At first, Calkins smiled and shook his head no, records show. Then they talked. Out of all the things I asked you in here today, was Terrence with you when you ran his April 1st, 1975 date of birth over your next cell? That's the question that you can't answer. And when you do say no to it, you're not telling us the truth about it. Maybe it's not a yes or no answer. Maybe it's an I don't know. I can't see how it can be or I can't remember. He wants you to tell us the truth about it so that when you're I answering the questions, the not to this. You told the truth right along. You, you told, to you told the truth about some you. things. I mean, I'll give you that. You've told the truth about some things. But not about this. About everything. Steve, you had a lot of time to sit back and think about it. You know, <laughs> the whole day was insignificant to me. Until. Then, the questioning took a darker turn. And you'll hear the examiner mention Immokalee Road, the road where Deputy Calkins was last seen with Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams. The fact is that every time we ask you a question, we have to go back and get clarification. And every time we have to go back and get clarification, it makes it look like you're trying to hide something. And if you're trying to hide this, what else are you trying to hide? Do we got a body laying around in the sticks somewhere that we don't know about? I mean, are we going to be clearing, are we going to be widening, you know, Immokalee Road down through uh, Wiggins Pass someday and all of a sudden find out that we got a dead body out there? You know, I don't think any one of us want to sit here and say that that's the case. But you have to look at it from an outsider's point of view. I mean, we're working, like it's worth any case, to prove what you're telling us is truthful. If what you're telling us is truthful then you should not be having a problem, Steve. You know, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. The only thing we're trying to do is make sure that what you're telling us is the truth. I think I've told you everything I'm going to tell you. Okay, well, I've, I've told you everything I can think of. Well, obviously I'm, not to everything. The examiner issued his official findings. Deception indicated. He wrote, after a careful review, there were significant reactions indicative of deception to the relevant questions. But despite the examiner's conclusion, Deputy Calkins wasn't suspended from law enforcement duty until two months later, in June 2004, five months after Terrence Williams vanished and eight months after Felipe Santos went missing. He was ordered to give up his badge, patrol car, agency weapons, and keys to offices. Calkins was suspended pending investigation of allegations concerning personal conduct while on duty, though that's not what the sheriff's office told the press. They said that Calkins was placed on administrative duty for health reasons, quote, not directly related to this issue. In August 2004, the internal affairs investigation of Stephen Calkins and his interactions with Terrence Williams finally concluded. A sheriff's office sergeant found 23 instances where Deputy Calkins was untruthful, misleading, or gave contradictory testimony. We've gone over several in this episode. Deputy Calkins told his employer he was not deliberately lying. He said he was stressed and hurried the day he pulled Terrence over. Still, the sheriff's office sustained three allegations against Calkins. Untruthfulness, noncompliance with rules and regulations, and conduct unbecoming of an officer. The sheriff said he lost trust in his deputy. Calkins' appointment was withdrawn, not in good standing. In other words, Calkins was fired. But before Stephen Calkins was fired, and before the disappearances, sheriff's records show he was a solid deputy. There was nothing nefarious in his HR files. Even months after the disappearances, while Calkins was being investigated by internal affairs and on administrative duty, his supervisor said he was missed and called him a valuable member of their team. That version of Calkins is partly why my colleague Ryan was so intent on reporting as much as he could about Calkins as a person and a cop. It was equally important to look to see if there was evidence on the other side that he didn't do it and that it really was just this coincidence. 
In the next episode, we'll dig into Calkins' background. I'll travel to his Midwestern hometown, which also happens to be my hometown, in search of more answers. We'll interview his high school classmates, an ex-girlfriend, and we'll hear from a statistics professor and investigators about the odds that Calkins' link to these two disappearances could be purely a coincidence. I mean, as a good friend of mine would tell me, that it's possible the sun would fall out of the sky today, but it's a probable no. It's really hard for me to believe that he would have been involved in something that was um, illegal or horrible. Not only do I not want to believe it, I don't believe it. Steve Calkins, to me, other than what I've read, is an enigma. That's on the next episode of The Last Ride from USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media, distributed by the NPR Network. If you have any information about these disappearances, call the Collier Sheriff's Office at 239-252-9300 or Crime Stoppers at 800-780-8477. To share anything about this case with me, I'm on Twitter at J-A-N-I-N-E-Z-E-I-T-L-I-N. I'm Janine Zeitlin, producer, writer, reporter. Audio editor and co-producer is Amanda Inscore of Naples Daily News and the News Press. Sound design by Richard Chinqui of WGCU. Executive producers are Laura Granias and WGCU executive producer Pamela James. Original theme song by Christopher Russell. Audio assistance by Jared Gonzalez. Legal review by Tom Curley. Thanks also to guest editor Leon Tucker of the Lakeland Ledger and Florida digital producer Andrew Atkins. Additional support from Cindy McCurry-Ross. Please support journalism like this by subscribing to the Naples Daily News or the News Press or donating to WGCU Public Media or your local news source. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us wherever you get it. It really does make a difference. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com. You can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, we go back in time to where it started. Like, really started. To answer one important question, how did we get here? Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes... You need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.